Welcome to Unabridged, the weekly podcast where teachers take on books. We're your hosts. I'm Sarah, and I'm here today with Jen and Ashley. This is Ashley. We'll chat about our Unabridged Book Club's pick of the month, recommend related books, and share our nerdy English teacher love of reading with our Unabridged highlights and with short episodes featuring targeted topics. To follow along with our schedule, visit our website, unabridgedpod.com, where the books we read are linked for purchase. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hey, everyone. We just wanted to acknowledge that we had some mic issues during this episode, but we felt like the content was just so good. We didn't want to get rid of it, and we think that you will really love hearing Claire Hanscom talk about her book. So with that being said, we hope you enjoy this interview. Hey, everyone. We are here today with Claire Hanscom, host of the BritLit podcast. She is here with us today to discuss her new book, Unscripted. She was kind enough to send us each a copy of the book, which we read and are excited to discuss with her. Claire, would you want to uh, just summarize the book for us? Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, first of all. Um, it's Unscripted is a smart beach read about a young woman with a um, celebrity crush and a determined plan. That's the most concise summary I've come <laughs> up with so far. <laughs> I love that smart, smart beach read. That's a great way to describe it. Yes, that's excellent. Do you want to, before we get started talking about uh, the book, do you want to tell us just a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, sure. The BritLit podcast is a fortnightly, which in the US is a bi-weekly or bi-monthly. I get those mixed up. But anyway, it comes out twice a month. Um, and it's a conversation usually with an author, but sometimes with somebody else in publishing, in the British publishing world. Um, and I also talk about the new books out in those couple of weeks. So yeah, it's all focused on UK authors and the British publishing world. Cause I found that a lot of podcasts are very American centric and I live in the U S you know, I love American books and the American publishing world, but I wanted to make something that was specifically geared at, at British, the British podcast, uh, sorry, the British publishing scene. I know that you post, um, about that on book riot as well. Yes. Yeah, I've been writing for Book Riot for about um, three and a half years, I think now. Time really flies. Um, yeah, and every month I talk about some British books coming over here because I found that even books that get a lot of buzz and that are very successful in the UK, even if they're published in the US, they often just get sort of drowned out and maybe they don't. I don't know, maybe publishers just aren't as excited about the British books. Um, but when I find really good ones, I really want to champion them. Um, and I'm actually just about to start working in a bookstore too. So going to make it my mission to make sure that the really good British books that have been overlooked maybe get a bit more attention. That sounds like a great mission. Yeah, that's awesome. Are there any authors that you love that you'd love to shout out here? Um. It's more individual books at this point. A lot of the books that I've really loved have been debuts, so I don't really can't really vouch for any further books by those people. But one book I find myself recommending over and over is The Lido by Libby Page. And a Lido is an outdoor swimming pool, and it is a story about um, a community Lido, so a community outdoor swimming pool that is threatened with closure and the people that come together to sort of save it. Um, and it's mostly focused around a young journalist in her 20s who's just arrived in London and is kind of a bit lonely. And then a, an older woman who also is a bit lonely because she lost her husband not long ago. Um, and they become friends and they sort of team up along with other people to save the swimming pool. And 
Um, I, I haven't heard this term very much in the US, but there's a term called uplit, which is sort of happy, lovely books. And there's a bit of a trend in the UK for those. Um, well, alongside trends for like, you know, dark psychological thrillers. So it's not the, it's not the only trend. But I think some people at least... Oh, the world is kind of dark and scary and a bit uncertain at the moment. And people, some people at least, including me, like to read some sort of nicer fiction. Um, and so that that would be one example. And another book I really loved is called Dear Mrs. Bird. And it's about a young woman during the Second World War who goes to work for a magazine thinking she's going to be, you know, a war correspondent. And she ends up basically answering readers' problems. Um, she's an she's right working for the agony aunt what we call an agony aunt in the uk which i'm blanking on the term in the us um like dear abby type person um <laughs> and yeah and the woman that she's working for is really formidable and won't answer any questions that have any what she calls unpleasantness in them and so this young woman kind of takes it upon herself to help readers out even when she's not really supposed to and it's a really nice book um yeah, and I had the author on, and I had Libby Page, the author of The Lido, on my podcast as well. Um, so yeah, that that Dear Mrs. Bird is also a lovely book, um, which also hasn't got enough attention here. So I'm going to try and shout that one out some more too. This book yeah. sounds great. I yeah. feel like I've seen Dear Mrs. Bird on the Insta cover, at least on Instagram. I've seen it all over Instagram too. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Those sound great. And it's a good time of year for them also. Yes, yes. yeah. And yeah, I think I'm, I've, I've been thinking about with my reading list, trying to balance some of the heavier reads with things that have depth to them, but are enjoyable or that, you know, celebrate some of the more hopeful parts. Yeah. So, right. Are there any authors that you would consider influences on your writing? Um, yeah, I've been thinking about this. Um, I get asked this fairly often and I can't really think of a direct um, sort of example of a novelist um I've talked about this a lot but I'm a big West Wing fan and Aaron Sorkin in general has had a big influence on my life but that's another story and my writing um in particular well I like to think that I've learned from his snappy dialogue um and I, I also like to think I've learned from his sort of slow slow burn will they won't they romance um mm. and then on a completely different vein there's a book I really love called The Love Affairs of Nathaniel P by Adele Waldman it came out about I want to say five years ago or so um and it's a book where you're basically from my memory almost entirely inside the head of this guy who is not a nice guy he's like um a pretentious sort of Brooklyn white male writer um <laughs> <laughs> who like thinks he's the next best thing and all this kind of thing um but and so it's nothing like my book the themes aren't like my book except well I guess I have a writer in my book but she's very different from him but the psychology of it and the being inside the head of a writer um I don't know whether it influenced me but certainly I find it something that I love to read and I love to write I I'm much more interested in what's happening inside people's heads and, and below the surface of the plot than the plot itself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and the Aaron Sorkin connection makes a lot of sense I have to ask do you listen to the West Wing Weekly I do yeah I'm a big fan of the West Wing Weekly <laughs> I was late summer to the West Wing I didn't watch it when it was actually airing but my husband and I binged it a couple years ago and then I found the West Wing Weekly and I was so excited so yeah yeah it's a great show 
So I think we're going to go ahead and start talking a little bit about Unscripted. We're really excited to talk to you about it. Uh, what we wanted to know, first of all, is what was your inspiration for the novel or how did the novel come come about? So the novel is my my third novel and why that's important will become apparent in a, in a minute. Um, the first novel that I wrote was I wrote when I was kind of feverishly obsessed with the West Wing when I had just started watching it and I just couldn't get enough of it and at the same time I was teaching French to um, a guy who sort of vaguely looked I mean very vaguely looked like Josh Lyman Um, and so the two things came together and I wrote this book um, my first novel and the main character I named him Brad. I know it's really sad, but whatever. I named him Brad after Bradley Whitford. And he was kind of a composite of Josh Lyman. So the character that Bradley Whitford plays and then Bradley Whitford himself, well, my idealized version of Bradley Whitford himself, plus general idealized, you know, fictional man. So that was my first book. And as I was writing it, I was kind of daydreaming, wouldn't it be fun to write the screenplay with Bradley Whitford? And so this book, um, Unscripted, is basically... Well, what would actually happen if that happened? Um, so it's me taking my daydream a bit further. That is great. I love that. And I love Bradley Woodford. <laughs> that would be perfect. So how did you decide? So obviously that one storyline was inspired by your previous novel. How did you make the decision, that, which I think is a big one, to alternate between those four perspectives as a way to tell the story? I didn't at first expect to do that. I haven't, I've now written six novels and, excuse me, it's the only novel that I've written that um, does that. They're usually all from one perspective. I, when I, I mean, I knew vaguely the characters that would be in the book when I very first started writing it. And I was using a book called, I think it's called The Plot Whisperer's Prompts. It's, it's one of the exercise books that goes alongside the plot whisperer, the book. Um, and it it's actually a really helpful way to start going on a novel because it gives you bite-sized um, prompts, you know, now introduce your antagonist, now introduce, show us your protagonist in an ordinary moment, you know, show us your protagonist's greatest regret, all these kinds of different things that you could weave together um, to make a novel. And yeah, it was when one of the prompts basically said something about showing you know, show us who your antagonist is. And it just came naturally to me to do it in the voice of the other character rather than through the eyes of Libby, my main character. Um, I think possibly, I don't know if this was a conscious thing, but now that I think about it, it would have been difficult. I I wanted it to be through the eyes of the characters and she couldn't possibly know some of the stuff about the other characters that I wanted to bring about. So I guess it was also just a logistical thing as well. And that's interesting that you mentioned the antagonist because it was just sitting, I feel like everyone in the book is so complex and we'll get into this more that it's hard to identify a clear protagonist or antagonist who is, who functions that way through the novel, because I think you come to understand all of their sides and therefore they are more empathetic than I think a pure antagonist would be. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. That's really nice to hear. Um, well, I guess in a way, a lot of them are each other's antagonists as well. Yeah, um, yeah maybe their own too. Yeah, I was going to say that too, and their own. Like Libby especially is her own worst enemy in a lot of ways. So, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I was thinking the same thing that Jen said about the different perspectives. And I think that's part of what makes it so rich is just that all of them feel like real people who have these complexities, but who are well-intentioned. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, Libby, like you said, I think is probably her, she is the most self-serving, it feels, (laughs) um, in a lot of ways, but she also is driven. And I think I really respect how there is this balance between, or kind of a question between what is selfish and what is ambition Mm -hmm. and how do we pursue something that we really want to have happen Mm -hmm. without putting our needs before someone else's. So I feel like that is a lot of what comes out in the book. And I do think you get some of that also just because of the different, because of the way we can see the different characters and their perspectives on her, it helps us see all the aspects of her personality. Yeah, especially, I don't think this is a spoiler because this is a spoiler-free section, but her friend Dan, who has had a crush on her since forever, he sees, of course he sees her through rose-tinted glasses. So not everything that he sees is, you know, you can't totally trust what he thinks of her, but he does talk about the aspects of her that are more endearing and less selfish. And so I think that helps redress the balance as well. I love that. I had a question written down for later. Does he not see her clearly or does he just see the potential person she can become who is in some ways real to him. Um, because yeah, I do think it's like, we want someone who sees our best side that mm. that's we all want. To. I certainly <laughs> hope I have those people in my life because we need someone to see the best sides of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like, cause you said you've written six novels, which is amazing. Um, is there a certain like process that you've been using each time or, I mean, I loved what you said about the plot whisperer book. Are there other things that you've found work for you when you're drafting your first drafts? Or have you kind of tried different approaches for different novels? Um, I've tried different approaches for different novels. I tried to use that same book again. Uh, my sixth one is just mm-hmm. first draft at the moment, and it did not go that well. So I think maybe it's, there's just magic that happens, different magic for each book. And, and maybe it's just different every time, and I haven't or I haven't found the one thing that works for me. Um, But three of my books I've written as NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month Challenges. So um, I don't know if you've talked about that before on the podcast, but it's a crazy challenge where you write 50,000 words in in a month. Um, Is it three or is it four? I've written... Three or four, I can't remember. This one one wasn't a NaNoWriMo book. It was written... um, so I did a, a master's in creative writing and it was written over two summers, the two summers sort of after my first and second year of my MFA. Um, and my first, I'm someone who writes too little in my first draft. I think most people sort of write too much and have to trim, whereas I write too little and then have to sort of go deeper into the characters and explore further. Um, and so, and be a bit more explicit because I hate being over-explained to as a reader, but that means that I sometimes leave too much out as a writer. I'm like, okay, I do actually have to tell them what happened. They can't just totally imagine it. So yeah, so my first summer, I kind of wrote the first draft, which was a, from memory, something like 40,000 words. Um, and I sat down every day and not every, sorry, not every day. I'm not one of those people who says you have to write every single day. Um I just think life is more complicated than that. But, but, but I also equally, if I've decided it's a writing day, then it's a writing day and I'm not going to decide, I'm not waiting to be inspired. It's not so much that it's more that, you know, not every day is a writing day and that's okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, But if it was a writing day, I would sit down 
with my coffee in the morning, but sort of late morning, because I'm not really an early morning kind of person. Um, And I would make myself write 500 words. And at the end of that, I either had a good 500 words, or I was in the flow and I felt like I could keep going, or they were terrible, but it was only 500 words, so it didn't really matter. Um, That was kind of how I did my first summer. The the second summer is more blurry, and I think probably got more complicated, because that was when I was adding and you know, you don't want to just add padding, you want to add actual substance. So that gets a little bit more complicated. But yeah. Do you have a consistent first reader who's giving you that feedback between the first and second draft? Or is that all you still? Hmm, that's interesting question. I do have, I definitely always have readers. So I I handwrite my first draft, which I realize some people think is a bit weird. And so my second draft is me typing it up and tweaking it as I go or at well and also sometimes adding to it as well I, a second draft is a bit of a nebulous it's not that clear cut is it you don't have like one manuscript and then the second manuscript it's kind of always evolving but so I don't know that in the very early stages I really show it to anyone I don't really show it to anyone while I can still see glaringly what I need to do if I if I know what I need to do then I just do it um, but I do have a lot of readers who help me I was doing my MFA. So part of doing an MFA is getting regular feedback from your peers. So I was getting feedback that way. Um, Although MFAs aren't great for novels unless they're specifically novel focused, because you generally, you get feedback on a chunk, you know, which is kind of a short story length chunk. Um, And so you can't, usually that's just the first few chapters or the first chapter. So the first chapter got a lot of attention, Um, but, you know, towards the middle or the end, not so much from my MFA. So I have some friends who are readers and some friends who are writers and some friends, some people I've met purely because we're writers and we exist in the same sort of online spaces. And so they help me and they read and they give advice and comments, which is helpful. I also love what you shared in the book about Unbound. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, I mean, that seems like that was a great process for this book. I wonder, do you think that you will take that approach again? Um, Unbound, yeah. So Unbound is the publisher um, is my publisher and they are a crowdfunded publisher in the UK. Um, and you, so you crowdfund your book like you would on Kickstarter or whatever on their platform. And then after that, they become more of a traditional publisher once the book is fully funded. So the theory is that, um, publishers in general are very risk averse and tend to only take on books that they're reasonably certain will sell really well and make them their money back. Um, which is completely understandable as a business model, but it means that it means it's difficult because a lot of books, you know, they might just not want to take the risk, even if they're perfectly decent books. Um, they might think, well, I don't know if this is going to sell enough to make it worth our while, but with Unbound, the costs are covered. So it's less of a risk for them because <clears throat> the costs are covered by, by crowdfunding, which are essentially pre-orders. So yeah, so I did that. I don't think I would do it again. Um, it was absolutely exhausting. Yeah. It was quite, not quite, very emotionally draining. Yeah, so I don't know that I would do it again, but I'm glad that it's, they do make very professional looking books um, and, you know, they are well-respected in the industry. They're not some kind of weird 
um, weird scamming company. They're definitely well respected. And the people who started the company are people who've been in the industry for a long time and worked for, you know, mainstream publishers and things. So, yeah, I'm really glad that I've got a professional looking book. Um, but the process was kind of hell. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry. I, I will say I love the cover. <laughs> so, well, I love, I love your book. I mean, I yeah, so yeah. enjoyed reading it. So I think, yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying about how often there are really great stories out there that we don't mm-hmm. get to read because of them not getting through those gates. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I can, I can imagine. I, I really understand. I think podcasting, there are aspects of that that we have come to find are just something we didn't anticipate going into it that is really, um, like you said, can be emotionally draining and yeah. um, can feel a lot more sales-like mm-hmm. than what mm-hmm. I normally have done in my life. So. <laughs> yeah. So we also were wondering about the idea of the classroom TV show as one of the kind of central points for, especially for Libby. How did you come up with that idea? I, I thought maybe it was also had to do with the West Wing, but we just wanted to ask, especially since the three of us are teachers, we thought that was important. Yeah. So um, in the book, Libby has a crush on this actor called Thomas Cassidy, and he's famous for his role in a TV show called The Classroom, which is sort of this inspirational West Wingy version of of a school, basically. I the thing with the West Wing is that it's not just great TV; it's actually genuinely changed people's lives. It's inspired them towards all kinds of things. A lot of people. I live in Washington D.C., and a lot of people are here because of the West Wing, or in, they're in jobs, you know, and they're in their jobs because of the West Wing. But it's not even just that. Um, people have been changed and impacted in all kinds of ways by it. And so, I wanted a TV show for this book that had the same kind of impact on people that it wasn't just oh a nice tv show but something really stirring and inspiring I didn't want to do politics because I you know I wasn't writing about Bradley Whitford I wasn't writing about the West Wing I was creating a new thing and also politics is I love politics but this isn't a political novel and I didn't really want to go there anyway um, given the current climate, I'm very glad did, I didn't. Um, right. right. <laughs> That's what I when you were talking about it is that you couldn't have known not so yeah. long ago that yeah. the climate would be like this now. So yes. <laughs> but yeah. And then, so I want, but I wanted a TV show about something else that would be inspiring and stirring. And so I thought of teaching because, you know, that can have the same think that can have the same impact um, of inspiring people and maybe guiding their career choices and things like that. Um, so yeah, the name of the TV show, The Classroom, came from a friend of mine where I basically crowdsourced on Facebook. Um, <laughs> if Aaron Sorkin wrote a TV show about about a school, what would he call it? And so she came up with that. So I was like, oh, that's great. I'll use that. Um, <laughs> um, and then also when I was many years ago, I don't even want to think about how old I was because it was a long time ago. There was a TV show in the UK called Teachers. Um, and Andrew Lincoln, the guy who's in love with Kira Knightley in Love Actually, um, he was one of the main uh, guys in that TV show. And so now when people ask me who I think should play him in 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 the movie version of Unscripted, I think, oh, Andrew Lincoln would be great. Right, that would be perfect. I do love him. He's great. <laughs> Inside Walking Dead and Love Actually, although those are great. Yes. <laughs> um, so I thought Libby was a really compelling character. I also wanted to shake her through large parts of the book because I kept thinking Dan is right there and he is so sweet and loves her so much. 
Um, did she come to you with that sort of lack of self knowledge, like fully formed or how much did you have that envisioned before and how much developed as you were writing, I guess? Um, I think a lot of it developed as I was writing it. I mean, it's not, it's not a secret or a mystery that she is somewhat based on me, um, but she's also much younger than me and less self-aware than me. And I'm writing her with the benefit of being more aware of her than she is of herself, if that makes sense. It gets a bit meta when you talk about what characters know when they're not really real, but yeah. Um, um, yeah, so I think, and I really had to think about what makes her the way she is. And I guess I didn't want to, you know, I have my own reasons for for being the way I am, and I, but I didn't want to write about me and my family issues. I'm glad because my mum's read the book too. So I'm very glad I was like, see, she's got four sisters, definitely not me because um, I'm an only child. So um, yeah, I had to think about that and how that would affect her. And also I made her 10 years younger than me because, well, originally because I thought nobody would believe that anybody in their thirties was going to be obsessed with an actor or a TV show, but also because... Uh, well, not because I just found that as I wrote, it was helpful that she was younger because it's more forgivable to be the way she is. I think when you're in your mid twenties or not that long after college, than it would be sort of 10 years later. So yeah, I think she developed as I wrote. Um, yeah. I don't really know beyond that. It's all a bit mystical sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. That makes a lot of sense about her age because I felt like I thought that both Tom and Abba's perspective toward her was really tender, but also mm. showed the difference in their ages. Yeah. And, you know, I think like she talks about in the book that like that can work out for people. And there are people who have big age gaps who have great relationships. But I think because, I, yeah, all of that was just very believable that she would um, want to everything to work out and would really hope that it could. And also that he would be attracted to her, but mm -hmm. that he would see in a way that she could not the problems with that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was really his journey toward understanding himself more. I also found to be really interesting. Um, just there was a quotation I wrote down when he's first meeting Libby and he says he wants to enjoy Libby's enjoyment of him. He loves to break mm. the even unreasonable pleasure. And just that he is very aware that he is people pleasing and that that brings him enjoyment. And I thought it was interesting watching him work through that with mm. Libby. I do think he contributed a lot to that relationship, but then, you know, Abba's right there waiting. <laughs> I don't know. I thought he was a great character as well did he I don't even know how to phrase this question <laughs> y'all can help me if you want but yeah just how what about his path and did you see clearly from the beginning the path that he would take I'm trying to be careful not to spoil verge into spoilers here <laughs> um I'm not sure that I did totally know from the beginning there's a lot of discovery for me in in my first drafts I'm not somebody who plots in advance, although I usually know where the story's going and I usually have some sense of the main beats of the story, but I, there's a lot of discovery as I go. So I didn't, I didn't necessarily know. I think it was really important to me that even though he's an actor and he's obviously famous enough for people like Libby to know who he is and be obsessed with him, he's also not an A-lister who can't walk down the street without getting mobbed. So he is 
not saying that those people aren't real people because of course they are, but there's a whole other dimension towards being so that, that crazy amounts of famous. And that's not really the story I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell a story of somebody who, you know, is a normal real person like us, but just happens to have this job, which is a bit crazy and which does make him slightly famous, but he's still very much, yeah, a person who happens to be an actor rather than an actor, if that makes any kind of sense. And also I wanted him to be attracted to her because while it makes a better story, um, I also wasn't sure how I wanted it to end anyway. So that was necessary for, you know, figuring that out. But also there was a bit of wish fulfillment. Let's not kid ourselves. (laughs) Um, But yeah. And, um, and also just life is complicated. And I think, you know, it's too easy to say, oh, you're, you know, I'm attracted to this person. I'm not attracted to this person. It's life is much more complicated than that. And then I think also the other thing I will say is this might be getting a bit too West Wingy, so feel free to cut. But um, one of the things that Aaron Sorkin taught me unwittingly, this is going to be a slight spoiler for the West Wing, but we are talking about 20 years ago. So, <laughs> um, you know, I feel like that's probably okay. Um, that Josh Lyman at one point dates somebody who isn't Donna. He dates um, a woman called Amy, who is played by Mary Louise Parker, who is a wonderful actress and her character is great and they have so much chemistry. They're so hot together. But all I wanted to do was throw something at the screen because I was like, you're not supposed to be with her. What are you doing? Like this entire TV show is, you know, focused. Although of course that isn't what it's focused on. But in my head, it's focused on Josh and Donna getting together. Why is Josh getting together with someone who isn't Donna? This is not right. Um, And the level of emotion and investment that I had in that as a viewer is kind of what I bring to my own stories that I write as well. And so I wanted this level of um, this idea of who who are we supposed to be with and how does that affect our other relationships? And is there more than one person that we could be with? Or is it like when you watch a TV show and you think, no, this person should be with that person and there's no other, you know, there's no alternative. Um, so I think that all that it all came from that a little bit as well. <laughs> yeah, I do love that idea because I do think so often romances are straightforward and there are two people and you know that there will be intervening things, but that they'll end up together. Um, actually, I'm just going to go ahead and warn our listeners that we are going to move into spoiler territory, I think. And so if you don't want to know the end of the book, go read it, and then you can come back and listen. Um, I thought with all of them, it was great that they had someone else who was reasonable for them to be with or who they had been with, you know, just seeing that Tom and Jenny had had such a great relationship for so long and that the book didn't discount the fact that they had had this great life together that ended and that Ebba, um, her relationship with Ethan was tortured, but that they had had this love that they couldn't deny. And yet, of course, through the book, I was hoping that she and Tom would end up together. Mm -hmm. I really, I I liked that a lot. I thought it, that's the part when you said smart beach read, I was like, that makes so much sense because it has all the parts of a beach read that I want, but it is smart. And I will also say, we'll talk about the writing at some point. The writing is beautiful. And that's not always the thing I expect of my beach reads. Um, but yeah, I really love that, that acknowledgement of the complexity of life mm-hmm. and that you can be in a relationship that is meant to be, but that doesn't mean it's meant to be forever. Yeah. Well, and I had a question. Are Tom and Eva going to make it and are Libby and Dan? Because we end at the, the very end. It's just that kiss with 
living in Dan and me being a hopeless romantic, I need to know, are they going to make it? <laughs> I mean, in my head, yeah, totally. Everyone's going to make it. And actually I've written another book. Um, it's not exactly a sequel. Uh, it's set in the same world. It's two years later. And it's from the perspective of Tom's eldest daughter, who in Unscripted, she's 12. And she has like okay. a couple of scenes and I really liked her. And so I wanted to yeah. write about her and I wanted to write about these people in general a bit more. So it's not, it's from her perspective, it's a YA novel. So it's not really a sequel, but it's sort of a sequel. And, <laughs> and in that sequel, everybody is still together. So I'm, so yes, they do all make it. At least they all make it two years later. Um, but yeah. I love that. I loved her. I thought, I mean, one of the things I really appreciated was um, Libby's, attempts to find her way in his world mm-hmm. and um, how that was different for her because she was staying in the house um, or, you know, because she was in the annex. Like, yeah. I feel like she had to deal with that, but I loved that scene where she, they watched the movie where Claire had gotten left behind yeah. um, with the, you know, with the Disneyland thing and like how unfair that was and, and his whole role in, the, I mean, how he was trying to not, throw his wife under the bus or his ex-wife under the bus but also like how could this happen to this poor kid um and then how she found a way to really make a connection with her so I I love that because I think that those relationships were challenging to navigate and then Ebba was just on the cusp of beginning to navigate that Mm -hmm. so that's awesome because I think that that was something that was rich with a subtext but we didn't get to see (laughs) all those flushed out so that's really cool so at a certain point in the book, in reading the book, I was taking notes and I wrote down, aha, I know what she's going to do. She's going to end the book by having it mirror the screenplay and that whole conversation about whether it should have a happy ending mm. or not or be unresolved. Did you ever consider having that parallel or did you know that the happy ending had to happen in those cases? Uh, well, my instinct I'm a little, I'm a romantic, but I'm also a bit of a tortured soul. And I, I quite like a like heartbreaking, heartbreaking romance. So my instinct was actually to have her go back to the UK and basically she's lost everything. <laughs> um, you know, Dan's with this new girlfriend and, and Tom's with Ebba and she's, you know, not lost everything. That's a little dramatic, but that is how it would feel to her. Um, so that was my instinct, but I, you know, I thought that might be a little bit much. <laughs> um, and also I think, I think that Dan, I didn't just do it artificially. I think that Dan wouldn't, oh, I don't know. It's a long story. Is it, is it, you know, that, this could get into a whole conversation about is there the one or, or can we be with multiple people or whatever, but right. he certainly isn't emotionally ready to be with anyone else really at the in this novel at least because he's so in love with her and nothing's been you know maybe if they dated and broken up that would be one thing but he's never resolved this sort of desire to be with her and so I think that that needed to play out yeah yeah I mean I was I I would like to say the three of us I am the least interested in romance but I really wanted him to be at the airport and I was so glad when he was because I just think that we see her grow so much as a person that then you also want things to work out for yeah. her. And, her to, and I mean, I loved the, I felt like the message about what is a fantasy and what is reality and how do we navigate our way in the world in which we want to hope for certain things, but also live in the real world. Yeah. And I, 
So I loved that. I mean, I thought that she had come around to really understanding something about herself and to realizing that she'd taken a lot of the things that she had mm, for granted. Yeah. So then I was grateful that she has a chance to do something about that and to change those behaviors. Yeah. And I, she needed to go, I think, and, and have those experiences, you know, in order to, in order to be able to move on. Um, I, I don't know that, I mean, she gets to go through fairly extraordinary sets of coincidences and, and everything. And I don't know that what would have happened if she hadn't gone. I mean, hopefully eventually she would have got over it, but I don't know. I feel like she needed the closure in that aspect as well. So I also think that in a weird way, and it's the kind of the first time I'm saying this, but that in a weird way, Dan deserved for her to go as well because he deserved for her to have closure and be like, realize where it is that she belongs. Um, and also the fact that she does change that's that's definitely for me what makes it okay that she gets him in the end that she she sort of again life isn't always this simple but she sort of deserves Dan more at the end than she would have at the beginning I think yes yes and I think that was part of what I loved about having the different perspectives because I think like you said earlier that we see his view of her, which helps us see the best things about her, mm-hmm. but it also shows up so much about him mm-hmm. and how far, how, how steadfast he is, how far he's willing to go to look out for her. And so mm-hmm. I do think, I mean, I just, I believed all of that. I was just very thankful <laughs> that he was there at the airport because I thought, yeah, that it, I, I appreciated the whole scene with um, his, with the friends also and how he was kind of like, what do you want me to do? Like, you've been on my back this whole time about having a girlfriend and now I have a girlfriend and why is that not enough? But I also thought that that showed how they could see that that wasn't enough for him. And, you know, that that made me happy for them in the end. That whole friend group was also great. I I loved, I felt like that could have been a book on its own Mm -hmm. because it was interesting watching them support each other and challenge each other. Uh, Was that, really important to you to have that kind of thing did that mirror your own experiences yeah it definitely mirrors my own experiences I went to Cambridge the same the same college of Cambridge that Libby did um and I have a group of friends who are still to this day you know some of the most special people in my life they some of them traveled quite a long way to come to my book launch in London and quite a lot of my Cambridge friends were there which just was lovely um they're not based on it's not like each of her friends is based on each of my friends or anything like that. Uh, it's more that the general idea of these people that you meet and you, you've got your people um, and yeah, and they become so important to you and you sort of make each other who you are in a way. Um, so that's, that was important to me as well. And also I think this book is quite, I'm discovering as I'm reading the reviews, which you're not supposed to do, but I'm, can't not so um Libby's quite a divisive character some people really don't like her um because she is she is quite selfish and she is quite self-centered she could come across as a bit one-dimensional um but that's what was really important for me to for her to have this history of friendship so not only does she have people in her life who supports her support her but it also tells you something about someone that you know they have a group of friends they're grounded in the group of friends. They're still friends two or three years after leaving. Like she's not just dumped them. Um, they're still really important to her. So that gives her a bit more, um, a bit more grounding, I think. And a bit more, it's just a bit more to her. And it's the same, the same reason I wanted her to, 
be well educated too is that I wanted to show you know you can be a fangirl and not and that doesn't mean that you're stupid or that you're one-dimensional or that you have never thought anything through you can be passionate and intelligent those things are not mutually exclusive so that was part of the part of the reason for that as well yeah I think one of my favorite parts in the book is the it's a one-page chapter and it starts Libby sees and just it, it's a series of revelations. It's on 221 for those following along home. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, she sees the way Evelyn, when she's finally realizing that Evan and Tom are together mm-hmm. and that they're alive, And then that that leads to that whole series of revelations about herself. To me, then the pair for that is on 246 when she says it's been the least real thing ever, the opposite of real, yeah. but it's definitely been something. And I think there's so much growth to get to the point of the seeing and then also after the seeing the way she sort of recovers from it mm-hmm. I thought was powerful yeah and I loved her relationship with Eva mm-hmm. and how how that survived on its own and stood on its own and I think that was a really interesting thing too like mm-hmm. the camaraderie among women and the ability to understand each other yeah and respect each other's decisions and I mean I thought again that um even though she was so obsessed with him, it was feasible because she'd read the memoir, because she understood Ebba's history, mm. that then she was willing to let that mm. work out. And that that mirrored how Dan felt in a lot of ways toward her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, friendship is really important to me, as is to many of us, and definitely is an important part of this book. I wouldn't, people ask me if it's a romance, and I'm like, well, yeah, there are love stories in it, multiple love stories, but it's not just about that. It's about friendship as well, and yeah, friendship is a very important part of it, and also, I think, for as much as her relationship with Tom evolves, you know, from infatuation, she gets to know him as a real person, Um and I think by the end, it's kind of somehow reconciled the real person and the ideal of him. I think in some ways the same thing happens to her with Ebba because she also is kind of like infatuated with her after reading her memoir um, mm-hmm. and then gets to know her as a real person and is still, she's still ridiculously admiring of her. Um, but I think that's really, you know, really realistic. I know people, I have people in my life who are older than me, who I really respect and sort of think and do no wrong, even though I know deep down they can and they have, and maybe they have, you know, hurt me or, or hurt other people or whatever, but I still like put them on a bit of a pedestal. And um, that's definitely what she does with a lot of people, including Tom and including Ebba. And I think it's a really important, for me, it's, it's a really, it's, I wouldn't I don't know if I'd say the heart of the story because the heart of the story is Libby and Tom, but but Ebba is a really important part of it for me, and I think she's my favorite character actually. Yeah, she is. She is great, and she is doing some major self discovery as well. Mm. I think just watching her examine the relationship with Ethan and deal with her guilt about leaving mm-hmm. Tom for Ethan. Yeah, I thought that was very moving. Um, and I do want to say, I would love for this to be adapted. There were yeah. parts that I could so picture. There was a section when Tom and Libby are writing the screenplay mm. and it felt like a montage in the movie. I could just picture <laughs> it, it would be so good. Have you, have you thought about that? Has anyone reached out? No one's reached out. So yeah, if you know anyone, feel free to put the book <laughs> in their hands. Um, we, give, we give our endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a, it would be hard to write a book about a book becoming a movie without thinking about that book becoming a movie, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, there's one of my all-time favorite films, and this probably won't surprise you, is Notting Hill. Um, which is also about, you know, a mere mortal and a famous person. And there's this scene, they're on the roof, they're on his roof in London and they're running lines. And it's just like this really lovely scene. And that scene was kind of in my head a bit as I was as I was writing this. Obviously, it's a completely different story and they're not in London, they're in, you know, sunny LA or whatever. But I was like, oh, this, you know, this montage, I was kind of imagining montage of them writing in, you know, different places and things. So yeah, I would love for it to be a movie. I think it could be quite a good one and quite a nice feel-good summer, you know, chick flick type thing. So yeah, if anyone's out there and wants to do it, get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that pretty we've covered all of our questions. Do you have anything that you wanted to add about the book before we um, wrap up here? No, I don't think so. I think we've pretty much covered everything. We have so enjoyed talking to you today. We um, we, are, we really enjoyed reading the book and we appreciate you providing us with the copies and we will, you know, shout it from the rooftops that we enjoyed it and we just really thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really lovely. Awesome. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for your great and intelligent questions. You've really like engaged with it. That means a lot to me. So... <laughs> Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We would love to hear them. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, on Instagram and Twitter at UnabridgedPod, or on the web at UnabridgedPod.com, or on our Patreon page. We'd like to thank Jared Featherstone, who composed our theme music, Strings of Light. Many thanks to Katie Amy of Amy Photography, our podcast photographer, and Tim Rieger, our videographer. Thanks for listening to Unabridged. <laughs>